Open Globe Talk is a podcast series for aspiring ophthalmologists and trainees interested in obtaining education in global ophthalmology. Be part of this unique setup as we interview ophthalmologists around the globe virtually and get to create equity in service, innovation, and medical education. Welcome back to another episode of Open Globe Talk. This is Razul, and we are starting with season three in a very thoughtful theme that we'll be tracing from the first episode to the end. And today I'm joined with Dr. Eve Higginbotham from the University of Pennsylvania Department of Ophthalmology. She's currently the Weiss Dean for Penn Medicine Office of Inclusion, Diversity and Equity. She's also the Senior Fellow at the Leonard Davis Institute for Health Economics. Along with being a professor of ophthalmology at the Shy Eye Institute, she also serves as a board member for Ascension in their finance and audit committees and chairs quality committee, and also is a board member for Massachusetts Eye and Infirmary and Corporate of Mass General Brigham. She's an incredibly accomplished and very busy person. Um, she obtained her education from Massachusetts Institute of Technology in chemical engineering, and then went on to gain her medical education from Harvard Medical School. She obtained her ophthalmology residency training at the Louisiana State University Eye Center, and then promptly did her glaucoma fellowship at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary. Last but not least of her many accomplishments is her Master's of Law degree from the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School in 2020. So our guest speaker is somebody with not just ophthalmology experience, but also somebody who has a lot of scope in justice and equity. And so today we're joined with Dr. Higginbotham. It's such a pleasure to have you on this platform and as an opening guest speaker for season three. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. And thanks for inviting me to be part of your series. I feel so honored. Absolutely. So we'll start off with our question, as you all know, and we get various different responses about this. Uh, Can you share a little bit about how you got started in ophthalmology and then glaucoma? Because you went from chemical engineering and then entered medical school, which is quite a fascinating story of its own. Well, thanks for that. I certainly did not choose ophthalmology the first day I entered medical school because I didn't know about it. And it wasn't until I met a wonderful role model, a woman ophthalmologist who had a laboratory. Uh, She also had a practice and a family. And I said, this is the kind of life I would love to have with balance. And she enjoyed what she was doing. So I actually entered ophthalmology more because of the kind of person that I met who seemed to enjoy what she was doing, as opposed to just looking at the discipline. Of course, I always loved the discipline uh, of ophthalmology. I actually can trace my interest in the eye to junior high school when I compared a sheep eye to a pig eye uh, and a cow's eye anatomically. And that was one of my first uh, science projects. So I think I already always had it in my blood. And chemical engineering was a perfect complement because as a glaucoma specialist, 
we deal in fluid dynamics all the time. That's excellent. And I think that engineers can make excellent surgeons. Um, you are right about that. Uh, because uh, engineering teaches you how to think. And I certainly believe it's been a, a big asset. Absolutely. There's a lot of math involved in ophthalmology. There's a lot of instruments that can be developed and the best person making them is often the person using them. Yes. Yes. And that's one of the things that attracted me to the field as well as the technology. We were using lasers more than any other discipline at the time. And and certainly I was attracted to not only the technology, but also the open-mindedness uh, for new ideas. Wonderful. I do want to kind of trace back into your roots in Louisiana. Um, it's a wonderful and beautiful, vibrant community. And I'm curious, because you have this passion for diversity, equity, and inclusion, what were some things growing up that you saw in your community kind of felt out of place with respect to healthcare delivery? Well, I grew up at the later stages of Jim Crow laws in the Deep South when there were segregated schools as well as uh, facilities. Um, I was born in a Black hospital, Flint Goodridge. And so I remember times when we had to walk to the back of the bus, uh, but I didn't know why, but certainly I followed my parents wherever they went. So I didn't really question very much. And I believe it's those roots that really has provided me the stimulus to, to, to want to actually push for greater social justice. Because I saw so many people in my community, my parents, national figures like Martin King, fight for social justice. And unless we have people advocating, nothing will change. Yes. And that is absolutely true. Um, I did read that both of your parents were in education, which is very interesting because both of my parents were in education. And sometimes I, I wonder how that impacts the growth of a child when both their parents are teachers and you know they're being raised to have some you know higher morale and higher you know, values than than others and they're kind of like the example child that they have to be throughout their life and that's absolutely true i think having two public school teachers was was certainly an asset my my husband wasn't raised by teachers and he has uh, commented to me that you know, maybe it would have been a little different for him early on because my parents as educators would certainly look very closely at what I was learning at school and really fill those gaps once I, I returned home. So I had school, not only in school, but at home as well. Yeah, it's fascinating that um, I'm assuming you would be the first person in your family to be a doctor. Well, I'm actually the second. I'm the youngest of three daughters. My oldest sister was a radiologist and, and she specialized in nuclear medicine. So I think she was probably one of the first women of color to actually specialize in nuclear medicine. Wow, that that is historic. Um, now, going into the Defense Health Board, when I saw that on your profile, I was very intrigued. And I was curious, how did you get started with that? And what gaps did you see in representation of eye care? Because even if you look at the USPSTF board, they consult eye care providers, but they don't necessarily include them in the board. 
That's an excellent. Well, there's so many ways I can answer that question. But first, let me address the Defense Health Board. I was invited to join this federal advisory committee when I was senior vice president of uh, health sciences at Howard University. And it gave me a chance to not only provide input at the highest levels to the Assistant Secretary for Health Affairs, but to honor my father. My father was a Tuskegee Airman. And so even though I didn't myself serve in the, in the armed forces, I really wanted to honor my father's memory because for so many decades, Tuskegee Airmen had not been celebrated. And it wasn't until the year before he passed that he received the Congressional Gold Medal, uh, as did other Tuskegee Airmen. So it was in his memory that I served. At the highest level, certainly it was apparent that eye injuries is one of the major issues that impact service members in the theater. We saw that in every war, and and certainly it's a matter of actually understanding the best ways to protect um, vision throughout any battle, and, and certainly to provide the insight in terms of what are some possible things in the future in terms of rehabilitation. But I would say my greatest uh, contribution to the board came from my own experience being a strategist and, and policy maker uh, at the system level. And certainly that's where the engineering comes in as well, because a lot of it has to do with logic and what makes best sense in terms of how policy should be crafted to provide the greatest impact. And so I drew upon my own experience, having already served as department chair and and working at the executive level at two other institutions. I was already a dean, had already been a dean at a school of medicine. So I drew upon my executive leadership experience to influence strategy. And of course, as a Devoted ophthalmologist, wherever I could, I was always advocating for eye health at the highest level. So actually prioritizing eye health as a fundamental ingredient of population health is is one of my passions at this time. That is excellent. And this is a treat for me because I'm doing my MPH in pop health. And we get to learn so much about prevention. And it's unique because you get to focus on the specialty that you're interested in. Um, and so over the this whole year, I've had the opportunity to look at eye health from many, many different angles, which astonishes me that, you know, why is eye care so separate from regular health care? It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And this year... I'll be giving the Jackson Lecture at the American Academy of Ophthalmology, and that's going to be my topic, is is really striving to make eye health a priority in population health because it is uh, considered one of the multiple multimorbidities, multiple morbidities that really has a very negative impact on quality of life. Any individual that may have, for instance, visual impairment and diabetes and visual impairment and depression. It multiplies the impact of those chronic diseases that are more often discussed. 
Mm -hmm. uh, in so many ways. So eye health deserves to be there. Absolutely. Um, Now we're going to dive in a little bit into your DEI work. You're the inaugural Wise Dean for Inclusion and Diversity at UPenn. And I'm curious to know, like, can you share your experience and observation with DEI with respect to the field of ophthalmology? We have so many wonderful programs now with mom, rab, but are we doing enough and can we do more? Well, we can always do more and we're doing more than what's been done in the last 50 years, I'll say, in ophthalmology. So we are doing more compared to doing nothing. So it's it's definitely progress. We're making some progress um, with mom. I'd like to certainly congratulate those that actually put that program forward and a, a wonderful collaboration between the American County of Ophthalmology and the American University Professors in Ophthalmology is so critically important to get the next generation exposed to ophthalmology because we're not part of the core curriculum in any medical school. Medical students have to go out of their way to find us. And once they do, many do fall in love with it as, as I did. And as you have as well, it sounds like, Rizal. Absolutely. So it's an opportunity, I think, to spend time with an ophthalmologist to really learn the discipline uh, that really can make a difference. Now, in my work at University of Pennsylvania, I would say that one of the challenges has been is to maintain momentum around this work because it's often marginalized. It's not oftentimes place at the center of the business of an organization or the core functions of an organization. So I had to utilize my experience having had been an executive in other institutions to really place myself in the middle of conversations. Uh, and, and certainly that persistence has paid off because now we have measures of accountability, for instance, for departments where departments have to make an argument for why they're not making as much progress as they are in terms of uh, diversity, Uh, but they also are tracked in terms of their expenditure. So having some accountability is so key to any inclusion, diversity, equity initiative. Yeah. And, you know, there are people who are concerned about, like, do we need to continue with diversity, equity, inclusion? And what are, what is your response to, to those types of statements? And I, I wonder if the way that this information is being expressed to departments on why it's important to include it is comprehensive or, in, or detailed enough for them to be convinced. Well, that's an excellent question because that's why I'm glad we covered population health earlier on because people need to understand the purpose of this goal. And that is that at least in the United States, the United States is growing in diversity and certainly will be extremely diverse in a, in a couple of more decades. But the younger generations in marginalized populations have younger populations than the dominant population. So we're a changing country. But also, if you look globally, there are about 360 million indigenous populations across the globe. 
And when you look at the life expectancy across the globe, those populations usually have lower life expectancy, indicating that there's a population health issue around the globe. I just came back from New Zealand where examining the health of Maori populations compared to New Zealand population is very similar to the United States. So this is not only the United States, but it's a global initiative. And so by focusing on population health, that gives you the purpose, which is equity. Health equity is the purpose. Inclusion gives you the the important means to get there. And because if you build a more inclusive environment, then you will have more sustainable efforts. And diversity just gives you a metric that you can just track over time. And that metric has to be granular enough that it makes a difference. You're very correct on that. And in some ways, you know, one of the things we were talking earlier was that we do so much in trying to recruit diverse talents and diverse backgrounds that is reflective of the underserved community that is growing in in our country and globally. But do we do enough to be inclusive, to create that environment that those trainees will stay in the field, not just within the residency? We don't. Uh, And that's why my office is entitled Inclusion, Diversity and Equity, because we lead with inclusion because that's our focus. We have to bring people together around a common purpose. We have to have access to opportunities for everyone. We have to build trust within the organization by having greater transparency of all things that are important to individuals within the organization. And we have to have respect. We have to have cultural safety as well for everyone. And when I mark off all of these uh, attributes of an inclusive environment, those are attributes that everyone can benefit from. So inclusion, I think, having more inclusive leadership is uh, critically important. And that's one of the things we emphasize at University of Pennsylvania as well. Transitioning over to a similar topic, and this is more to do with your master's degree in law. You know, I, I think a lot of people might be wondering, What led you to obtaining your master's degree after all these other degrees? And it seems very intriguing to me that you would go for a law degree. And I'm curious how you intended to use it in the field of ophthalmology or or in general medicine. Well, I really saw it important in my work in the space of inclusion, diversity, and equity, because there are just so many laws and policies that influence health equity. Uh, as one example. So for instance, um, the way that uh, Medicaid is actually regulated in this country at the state level, it's very, very different, very varied, but there are some missed opportunities, I think, to make it even better, I believe. And the populations that are impacted by Medicaid certainly require a special set of policies and strategies to impact their equities uh, space. So it's a matter of actually understanding the rules of law, our constitution, what's possible, our policy, all the legislation. And that's what I took away from my master's in law from University of Pennsylvania was really the influence of policies on equity, which is really my ultimate interest. 
That's excellent. And it's definitely a tool that not many of us have as physicians. Um, can you tell us of a time where the legal knowledge really helped knowing and dealing with inequities in, in certain situations? Well, I would say, where do I start? I, I think it's a matter of looking at, for instance, how mass incarceration has evolved in this country. Mm-hmm. And that massive incarceration of a huge segment of our population, primarily Black and African-American and Latino individuals is is really uh, impacting our communities in a way that is almost similar to what we experienced during slavery times. Um, so it's a matter of actually shifting one's focus outside of medicine to some of the larger issues that are impacting the house of medicine and the care that people are providing. You know, I talked briefly about Medicaid. That was one of the papers I wrote in, in law school about, you know, just how the Affordable Care Act and, and how it was actually implemented in some states versus others has actually provided a platform for really seeing a, a stark comparison in how care is delivered in certain states compared to others. So policies matter, but it it really helped me in terms of my own understanding of law, as well as interrogating the legal literature in terms of where there might be some solutions in the in the future. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned Medicaid in this as well because. You know, there are so many states, every state is so different, even the way that we do eye screening, the type of tool that each state is mandated to use or recommended to use, the costs differ so much between one state to another. It just boggles my mind why we're doing that and why we can't be uniform in the way that we practice not just ophthalmology, but medicine. And when those cost factors are included, it, it makes you wonder if the policies, even the ones that look and appear comprehensive, are truly comprehensive, or are they just covering up and saying, "Yeah, we're we're comprehensive. We're checking out that list, but really, we're we're not." Exactly, and and just the recent challenge that many Medicaid patients are experiencing now across the country, where they have to re-enroll. You know, following the cessation of some of the policies that are, that were in practice during the pandemic. I mean, the re-enrolling process is a barrier for many individuals. So there are just so many things that we need to be aware of. And I know that as providers, people will say, well, I can't change that. But you can change by at least being knowledgeable and advocating for your patients as well as voting in a in a mindful way for individuals that can help make those changes. Yeah. And, you know, an excellent one that came into my mind is the Medicare Medicaid gap. And, you know, we have people who are not making enough to afford, uh, but just making enough to not be in that pool of people who would qualify. And it just makes you wonder what can we do to convince the masses that this is an issue? Because most of the time people don't even know unless they're affected. That's exactly right. People just don't know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. And going back to our original discussion about eye health, people just don't know what they don't know about 
maintaining the health of their eyes over a lifetime. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Now, one of my second to last questions I wanted to ask was, what are your thoughts on implementing social justice education, health equity education in medical schools? I feel like the best time to really understand what this degree masters of law would have is is really after you become a doctor in in my opinion because i feel a difference in the way that i'm obtaining my mph versus if i had obtained it years ago when i was a a, a college student or something of that i do believe that there's some benefit in in adding to your knowledge as you gain more experience. Uh, Certainly when I was in medical school, there was the opportunity to get an MPH, but I didn't really have the experience at the time. I mean, one of my colleagues grew up with two doctors who were in private practice. And so she had a very different life experience that really made it apparent that there were times when people couldn't pay their bills. Mm -hmm. That's, that's an important pivotal experience. But I didn't have that experience and not having lived a life in healthcare. And so I do believe waiting to do it is is possible. Um, you know, I, I guess you're in your last year of med school before residency. Uh, I'm postdoctoral. So I'm okay. my MPH right after having graduated. Oh, okay. So that's a good time. It really is a good time because you've already had some clinical experience. Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of actually building on your experience and, and really cultivating even greater knowledge. I'm sure you're cultivating greater knowledge through your MPH courses than if you had gone through as a first or second year medical student. Yeah, that is really true. I mean, the amount of experiences that I've had in the clinic, especially in rural communities, I've really wondered if our doctors need this foundational knowledge, because whether it's law or public health degree, these kind of tell you a little bit more about the population we're serving. So in our conclusion, I wanted to Dr. Higginbotham for such a wonderful session. I've had so much questions since the time I saw her at Duke. Um, she was a guest lecturer there. And if anybody has ever you know, seen Dr. Higginbotham's lecture, you know that this is quality material. And there were so many public health concepts that I was learning in class that she was able to deliver in just one lecture. It was just astounding. So if you have a pleasure of listening to her at AO, I would highly, highly recommend attending. Dr. Higginbotham, do you have any last words to say to our audience, our young trainees, and even those who have graduated? Well, First of all, thank you for this opportunity to share my experience with you, Rizal. This has been a great session, and I think it's a matter of actually inspiring others to to know that it's important for us to think upstream. Mm-hmm. You know, it's important for all of us as providers to think upstream, and I know it's a there's some that want to stay downstream, but we have so much that we can offer for our patients. It's a matter of actually providing that to greater numbers as, as we consider population health. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Higginbotham. And thank you all for listening in. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Open Globe Talk. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Open Globe Talk. You can access audio recordings on our website, openglobetk.com, where we make our sessions available on Spotify, Apple, and Google. We are incredibly appreciative of our listeners and hope you ride along to meet more inspirational figures.